0: I'm Laurie, and I'm Steve, and welcome to another episode of This Podcast is is Gay. In this episode, we're delighted to speak to Dr. Jane Trays, who became an academic later in life, following a career in education. Jane's research has focused on the lives of older lesbians,
1: and her books have brought these stories to a wider audience we talked to Jane about her
0: work and the many other projects that she's involved in.
1: We're delighted to welcome Jane Trace to the podcast today. Hello, Jane. Thank you for joining us.
2: Hello to you and thank you for having me.
1: Great to have you on today. So our first question is, you became a postgraduate student later on in life. And how did that come about?
2: quite a lot later on in life, I was in my mid-sixties, that I had a previous life in which I was a school teacher for a very long time. But at the point at which all this story began, I was living alone in the deep country on the Welsh border. It was very beautiful, but it was actually quite lonely. And there were a lot of sheep, but not a lot of people. And so I decided that my brain was going to pudding and I needed to do something. And I looked around to see if I could find a university course that I might enjoy. And I thought, hmm, I want to learn something new, but I don't want it to be connected in any way with any of my previous life. So nothing to do with English literature, nothing to do with teaching, nothing to do with education. And I found this one-year master's course at Birmingham in gender studies. And I thought to myself, that's interesting because that's very relevant to things I want to think about. And it's something completely different. And it turned out to be a totally life-changing experience. They have no gender studies department at Birmingham, but they did have a bunch of feisty women from every different discipline who got together to make this course. And so it was a, a modular course. And by the end of it, I was completely addicted to learning. And I wanted to do go on and do a PhD. So that was how it all started. I never looked back. Changed my life.
0: <laughs> and so that led to your research into telling the stories of older lesbians?
2: Yes, it did. Because this gender studies course was, as I say, very varied. We did lots of feminist theory, and we did lots of different aspects of gender representation and theorising in society. So we looked at masculinities and we looked at the history of feminism, and we looked at all sorts of things, except we never found any lesbians. And I thought to myself, here I am studying this because gender issues are relevant to me, and I, I want to think about this stuff, but I never find anybody in this course who's like me. And not only do I not find any lesbians, but I particularly don't find any old lesbians. And here I am at 64 and being queer all my life, and nobody's noticing me in theories about gender and representation and sexuality and what have you. So it turned out that this was a kind of master's course where you actually have to do a little bit of independent research, which was scary. But I thought I would write my little dissertation about older lesbians being invisible. And that's where it all began, because having written that and got the degree and proved to myself at least that older lesbians were invisible, I then thought, well, I could go on and do a doctorate making them visible, that's the thing. I've proved we're invisible and I don't want to be invisible, none of us do, so that's what I did. And and I, I went to Sussex because by then I was thinking about moving down here to the south of England. And I went to Sussex, which is very different and where everything is very, very queer. And it's a brilliant, brilliant place to do any kind of gender or sexuality research. And I did two things for my doctorate. One was a huge questionnaire survey which got responses from about 400 old lesbians, um, which was quite mind-blowing really. And then to put the flesh on the bones of those statistics, I started doing life history interviews. And that's really where it all began because the, the degree went by and I did it and I crunched the numbers and did the statistics. But the thing that has stayed with me ever since is whipping out my microphone every time I see an old lesbian and collecting life stories.
1: And so where did you find these 400 older lesbians?
2: Yeah, that's a question everybody asks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> especially if they were invisible, yeah. Yeah, I guess. That's...
2: Well, that's the thing. And of course, I don't think I would have been able to do it had I not identified with them and allowed them to know that it was a person like themselves who was doing the research, because they were, especially those who had been born, you know, a generation or more before me the ones that had grown up in the 20s and 30s, they were extremely closeted still and they had to ask friends of friends whether they'd ever heard of this Jane Trace and if they had one, that might be all right. And then once one has the confidence of that hidden community and they know that you're, as it were, one of them, they pass you from hand to hand and the thing just snowballed. It just snowballed and it was very touching because people wrote, or first of all, because they... They all felt a a sense of ownership in my research so they were always writing to me and telling me how I could have done it differently and what questions I should have asked. And then they were also extremely moving messages that I had saying thank you for telling our stories. And there was clearly a very strong feeling that we didn't want to be ignored, we didn't want to be invisible, but on the other hand we didn't want to be individually outed and recognisable. So it was this collective wishing to be seen as a group if not as a person and it just just took off it wouldn't have happened without the internet either if I'd been doing it even 10 years before that I don't think I'd have had the reach that I did but I ended up with a very pleasingly diverse database which gave me all sorts of information and jumping off points yeah Mm.
1: and this led to you becoming a a published author in this field
2: yes well it was very sweet when I was at Sussex because there I was heading up for my 70th birthday and I, I actually got my PhD just before that. So I said to myself, I, I, I would finish before I'm 70. But my fellow students at Sussex were absolutely lovely and delightful. And they took me in just as one of themselves. And very rarely, except, you know, when I was too tired to go to the pub or something, even seemed to notice how old I was. And they occasionally would say to each other and to me, what are you going to do when you finish this? What's your next plan? And are you going to publish your thesis? And so I just sort of got drawn into that, oh, I ought to publish my thesis thing. And I wrote to Paul Grave and they said, yeah, okay. And so that was my first book was effectively my thesis really turned into a book. But after that, when I sort of left the university and left academia as such, I looked at all the data that I got. And I saw that I would got all these wonderful stories that I'd collected. And I just thought these people deserve to have their stories told from beginning to end. Because when old people sit down to tell you their life story, they very often have a natural trajectory. They they have a beautifully crafted story that's sort of formed in their head over the years. And you want the beginning, the middle and the end. You want to know what happened to them. And so that was my, that was the, the work that really made me feel this is what I do, was making the, the book of life stories. Yeah.
1: Which was um, published as Now You See Me.
2: It was published as Now You See Me. And the thing that's really amazing about it, not only that I'm still in touch with quite a few of the women in it, and that's lovely, but that it's now ooh, two, nearly three years since it was published and it's still selling. So there obviously was a desire to know these stories and I'm absolutely thrilled about that.
0: We've both read Now You See Me and there's something just really interesting about reading all the stories and quite a sort of...
2: Have you got to the end yet?
0: Yep, we read the whole thing.
2: Those two ladies in the last story are still very good friends now, well into their 80s. They are such a double act. They're <laughs> so lovely. And, and they've had this wonderful afterlife because of the book. I got them up to London. I took them to Gaze the Word and lovely Jim at Gaze the Word was so great with them. And he took their picture holding the book and all this. And now, every time they go to London, they go to Gaze the Word. And they love it. And they had a big display when the book was first out. And I've got a wonderful picture of the two of them standing by the picture of them when they were teenagers. Outside Gaze the Word. So, oh yes, (laughs) we've had such fun.
0: Yes, yeah, their story so. was really, really touching. Is there anything that you've noticed, common themes that you've seen sort of in the life of the women that you've spoken to?
2: Yes, I think so, though it varies very much with their individual circumstances, varies from generation to generation, because that collection covers two or three generations, mm. in fact. And it, you know, one of the things that I found when I started out was I, I said I was going to study this this entity called old lesbians. But when I looked at it all, I thought, what have they got in common? They're just as different from each other as everyone else in the population. You know, some of them are rich, some poor, they're different religions, they're different politics, they're different gender expressions, they're all sorts of things. Um, But I think looking at those older women that I've studied, I would say probably the things they've got in common are having lived to a greater or lesser extent hidden lives, having had to conceal very much of the time, very much of their lives, most of them, who they were and what they were. And one of the things that I found hardest to convince people of when I was doing this work was that, of course, there are quite a lot of old lesbians who are still completely closeted and would deny it to your face. And I think that's one of the things that people find the hardest to believe in this, you know, they go, oh, in this day and age, nobody needs to be in the closet. But of course, if you've been in the closet for 50 years, it's a habit of mind and a kind of place of fear that it's very difficult to get out of. So there's, to some extent, everyone's had a hidden life with one or two very, very rare examples. And I think linked to that, the other thing I would say binds us and and enabled them to identify with me and me to identify with them is... The important, this applies to old gay men and old queers generally, I think, the importance of chosen family, of community, of the support group, which actually does understand you and with whom you don't have to pretend. And I think that's a a very big, big part of older LGBT people's lives, even now. And it's interesting because it's not something I think will feature in the lives of LGBT people who are young now. In fact, I know some young women in in same-sex relationships who say to us, we don't know any others. Hmm. Uh, All our friends are straight. And maybe it's not needed anymore. And if so, that's a very good thing. But for those who were, you know, really old and really queer from uh, from early age and very lonely and very full of shame and rejection and and lost their families very often, finding other people like them was absolutely crucial. Hmm. Really, really important and often saved their lives.
1: And, and you, you flagged up actually that link between feminism and lesbian rights, and that seemed to be something that lots of the women in the book had found feminism at the same time as finding their sexual identity.
0: Yeah, a sort of a political awakening almost, I think some of them describe yes, it as. Yes,
2: and I think if you are of that generation, you know, th- those two things can hardly be teased apart. But I think for older women, women who would now be in their 80s, 90s, particularly those who identified as lesbian before they identified as feminist. And particularly within that group, those who have a kind of masculine-identified gender position, so old butchies, basically. I think they very often are not feminists. They have felt rejected by women-identified women. They have felt rejected by feminism. They didn't identify, perhaps, with women all of them and so those in those very much older groups it was much less taken for granted that I would be talking to someone with feminist politics It's, it's a very complex thing and actually it brings me to something I wanted to say in this conversation which was that it's very easy to get hung up on words rather than on the things they describe because I'm very aware now even after 10 years or so of doing this work but over that period of time the word lesbian has changed its its meaning in in popular culture if you like or in people's minds it's become very much a bad word it's not a word that young women want to identify with i was talking about talking to a young woman the other day who'd been researching 18 19 years old researching same sex female relationships among her you know generation of people they were clearly what I, in my simple way, in my old age, would call lesbians, all of them. But not a single one of them was prepared to use that word to describe herself. They, they rejected it quite heartily. And I think it's come to mean, well, at one far end, it's come to mean trans-exclusionary and generally vilified. And it's also come to mean something very old-fashioned and something that has to do with a certain kind of feminism and feminist politics, which a lot of younger women now feel is outdated. So when I'm merrily banging on about lesbians, I do realise that I may well be losing a large part of my audience. We mustn't let ourselves be defined by the language we grew up using. Otherwise, we lose the truths that those words describe, I think. As long as you know what people mean, and you don't jump down their throats for using the wrong words, I think we'll all be all right.
1: And interestingly, in many of the stories, the women said... They didn't have a terminology to describe the feelings they had about other women.
2: Yeah. And I think that's very, very much part of, of what that particular older generation has in common. Yeah. That they were actually brought up ignorant. Though I have to say, most girls in my generation, or before my generation, were also brought up in complete ignorance about any kind of sex, straight or gay.
0: We were a bit, I think there was a couple of stories where um, they were saying that they failed their biology exams because the teachers refused to teach anything about that, sex. that's yeah. a wonderful yeah. story isn't yeah. it? i
2: think that was the school taught by nuns yes. I yeah. that story. yes exactly absolutely absolutely and what's lovely is that it doesn't matter because eventually your sexuality just breaks through it doesn't matter whether you were taught or not it happens in the end but i think the result of it was uh, an enormous amount of internalized shame
1: What surprised me from the perspective of being a gay man is that there did appear to be these lesbian communities. There was the Gateway Club. There was, um, is it Kendrick?
2: Yes, yes.
1: And actually, you know, I'm quite aware of male gay clubs in the 20s, but you really don't hear about the social activities of, of lesbians.
2: There's a very good reason for that. And it's something I've thought about a lot because one of my first piece of academic work that I found to look at about older LGBTQ people was a piece of work by some academics out of Manchester which said that by and large they had ended up talking about gay men in their work because it was very difficult to access old lesbians because there are no organised networks for them. Now this is untrue but what these men had failed to understand was that the old thing that goes back 19th, 18th, 17th century of men live their lives in public, women live their lives in private, was still true. And so they went to gay bars and bathhouses houses and sort of things to find their old gay men. They didn't know where to go to find their old gay women. And the answer was, of course, that the lesbian scene has actually always taken place in people's homes, in in front rooms. They didn't go to bars; there weren't any, and anyway, it wasn't a thing women did in those generations. No woman would have walked into a pub on her own and gone up to the bar. And if she had, she wouldn't have been served, because publicans reserved the right not to serve women in pubs until about 1975, or I don't know, was it 81 or something? And their excuse was that a woman on her own in a pub was a prostitute. So women traditionally led their women's lives at home in the domestic space, and I think that's where the lesbian networks were, and certainly in my youth. I, I belonged to Kenrick, and I belonged to various lesbian groups that didn't necessarily have names. And we would meet in somebody's sitting room on a Saturday, Sunday afternoon, uh, and we identified as a group. You know, quite a strong group identity. We that was where we made our friends and new people. But probably we were completely invisible to the outside world. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and there was that. I think the oldest one in your book who came out when she was eighty-five. Oh bless her. Yeah.
2: Dear lovely Edith. Yeah, she she was just. She was quite a character, actually, in a quiet way, because she'd been married very young. She'd had children. She had grandchildren. By the time I knew her, she had great-grandchildren. She'd been a faithful wife and mother to a man who I think was probably a bit of a bully, though she never said so. And it was only after he died, after 60 years of marriage, that she decided she'd got to tell somebody that she had always, always been a lesbian. And I was fortunate enough to meet her at that point. So she became a very special person in my life. Uh, And she lived almost to 100. She died just months short of her 100th birthday, by which time, you know, she had been able to come out. She had been able to have some lesbian friends. And she'd been able to tell her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. And they had been, you know, accepting and lovely about it. So that was a happy ending in one way, but in another way, it was such a wasted life.
0: I suppose conversely to that, it also feels that there's some women who come out, have, their, have a lesbian partner for a long time and then... Go
2: back in again. Go back
0: in again or, <laughs> or you know, kind of the partner dies, they lose that, lose that community and, yeah, as you say, go back in again.
2: Yes, my second oldest interviewee was a bit like that. I mean, she had been married very briefly early on, just after the Second World War. But she hadn't lasted, for, you know, hadn't lasted very long and it was very clear why. And she'd had some quite exciting gay times because she was in the theatre and she was in a slightly more middle-class, uh, sort of bohemian category. Um, but, I mean, always, always in the closet, always completely in the closet within the lesbian community. But she'd had a really jolly lesbian life. And then by the time I met her, she was just coming up for 90 She was living all on her own in a great big house in the country in a nice, respectable village. And she said to me, I don't think anybody knows anymore that I used to be a lesbian. And I was very struck by that because she said it like that in the past tense. I used to be a lesbian. And it wasn't that she'd become straight. It's that she had nothing to tie her identity to anymore.
1: Interesting. Well, shall we move on to to yourself then, Jane? So... How was it for you growing up as, as a lesbian?
2: One of the things about the research that I've done over the last 10 years is that it's actually helped me to understand a great deal about myself because I had no idea whether I was typical or atypical or, or what. And it was when I went to university and fell in love with a fellow student that I entered into my first sexual experience, and that was a same-sex relationship. So I didn't even think of myself as a lesbian then. It took me a long time to come to terms with the idea that, that might be a word I could use about myself, because, again, of all the internalised homophobia and, and the denial and the... Yeah, so that was a... took me a long time to come out to myself. Mm. And, of course, in those days, there wasn't really even a debate about whether you came out to anybody else. I mean, I went off and became a teacher. And, oh, no! No! Not, not a word was said for many, many years.
1: And many of the women in the book actually said that there were either colleagues or when they were pupils, they recognised that there were gay and lesbian teachers. Was that something you came across as a teacher that, although it was not spoken about, that you recognised there were others like you?
2: I remember that in in my very first school when I was very young, there was a teacher there on the staff, a woman, and she was quite fierce and and cross and, and not easy to know. But I remember my head of department saying to me one day, it was a very old-fashioned school. We used to have to wear gowns for assembly. And there was a gown hanging in the staff room that nobody ever took off the peg. And I must have commented on it at some point. And my head of department said to me that it had belonged to a woman who had previously been on the staff and had died. And that she was the special friend of this fierce one. And this fierce one had not wanted anybody to move her gown and of course I knew it once then didn't I? I I knew at once what that was but no way that I could have expressed it to the woman or said I'm sorry or I understand or because in those days we didn't even come out to each other. It sounds daft doesn't it? We didn't come out even to each other let alone to the pupils or the parents or the world in general. As time went by at least the lesbians and gays on the staff knew who each other were And so, you know, we had each other's backs, but it, oh, it was a slow business. It was, and then of course, Section 28 didn't make it any easier. I, I, you know, I'd become slowly much more politicized, especially around Section 28. And I would love to have come out, but I wasn't brave enough. And then latterly, I was head of a big mixed school. And I used to joke with my friends and say, well, if I don't manage to get out of this bloody closet by the time I retire, I'll do it in my retirement speech. And that was what i did um, i think they still remember it in that education authority
0: <laughs> and just thinking about the we were talking earlier about finding a lesbian community is that something that you've found for yourself in brighton now
2: well you don't have to look far for it in brighton but i have to say i have found it wherever i have lived okay i have found it always and when i was living in that remote spot on the welsh borders up a mountain with the sheep that I described to you at the beginning of this conversation, I had a huge and lovely lesbian network. We had to drive a few miles to meet up. But yeah, there's always been family. There's always been family. It's been brilliant. And of course, when I came to Bright, all I had to do was ask. But it was quite funny, really, because I, I'd been down here two, three months, I suppose. And I was living with my sister at that time because I hadn't found somewhere to live. And I thought, I really, you know, everybody I'm meeting is lovely and they're all very kind to me, but I really need some like-minded company. So I inquired and I was put in touch with a, g- a group of old lesbians in Brighton. And they meet at this particular pub on this particular night. And I remember it, and I laugh at myself now because I think there I was, 60-whatever-I-was, and stood outside this pub like a teenager, all aflutter, thinking, oh my God, there's a lot of lesbians in there, and I'm going in to meet them. But of course... Once I got inside and they started to come in one by one, they were the people you've always known. They were recognisable to me as family, and I suppose I was to them. So it was very easy in Brighton, yes, not difficult at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm. So following this research, it seems that you speak at a lot of conferences and events. What do you enjoy about the work you do there?
2: Well, I just love an audience, let's be honest. Um, I just love it. Public speaking is my thing. Storytelling is my thing. I come from a long line of storytellers chiefly i'm thinking of my granny when i think of this and talking about my research into lesbian and gay lives to various audiences it just brings all the bits of me together i suppose and i suppose the teacher bit as well because i think we learn through stories and if you want to make a point tell a story
0: fantastic i think one other thing that we know about you sorry is that you. Do you work with lesbian asylum seekers and refugees?
2: That is my current project, yes. And it's been, oh, life-changing. Because of the work that I've done on lesbian lives and oral history work generally, I've been pointed in various directions by people, both inside and outside the LGBT community. I've done various bits of life history work. And then one day, out of the blue, about three years ago, I got an email from a woman in Hebden Bridge, up in Yorkshire, saying, you don't know me, but I know your work. Can you help? She was part of a volunteer support group for lesbian asylum seekers and refugees. And they'd hit a difficulty because they'd got a woman they were supporting who'd been turned down and turned down and turned down by the Home Office and was, you know, in danger of actually being deported back to Uganda. And the thing about her that was difficult for everybody was the fact that she was my age, which is very unusual because mainly asylum seekers are considerably younger. Apart from anything else, you have to have that much energy to make the journey. But she was a lesbian who had fled from, from her home country. She was one of these women who we were talking about earlier, who'd been a wife and mother until suddenly it happened, quite late in her life and then she'd been forced to flee and was there anything in my research that i could use to explain to the home office that there is such a thing as an old lesbian and that her story was entirely credible which they were saying it wasn't and of course i just sat there thinking oh my god here i've been doing all this work mainly for my own enjoyment and here is an opportunity to use it for somebody else so i wrote this huge letter i got to know her i got to know the group i wrote letters for other asylum seekers and now I'm doing a collection of life history stories, again, of the women in the group. So the next book, which I hope will be out in probably January or February, will be another set of lesbian life stories. But this time, they will all be from this group of refugees and asylum seekers. So they'll be from different countries, they'll be of different ages. It's been just the most amazing experience. It really has. Really, the the way people survive is amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, alongside your research, your teaching, we noticed you also had an alter ego as Jay Taverner, author of... Oh,
2: you have done your work. (laughs)
1: Lesbian, romantic, historical novels.
2: Yes, um, I was in a long-term lesbian relationship and one of the things we did together was that we wrote historical fiction, and we wrote I think we published three and they were quite well received and they were lesbian novels set in the 18th century. Recently we've been writing the fourth Jade a novel. Oh. And it's a kind of sequel to the others, but hopefully stands on its own. And 2021 might see that one come to light as well. So yes, an alter ego, as you say.
1: <laughs> wow. Well we were gonna finish with a final question which you
0: you probably answered this one, but Laurie. Yeah, well, your your future ambitions, which it sounds like there's quite a few irons in the fire.
2: Well, I just love you for asking me, uh, I mean, I should be 76 just after Christmas, and asking me what my future ambitions are is just very, very sweet of you, because I might just say, well, I've, I'm too tired to do anything now. <laughs> but yes, you've always got to be busy. At least I have always got to be busy. So there's getting the Asylum Seekers book out and publicised, And then there's hopefully getting the Jay Tavener novel published next year. But really, I guess I'm looking for a new project, aren't I?
1: (laughs) Well, we look forward to seeing where that project takes you, Jane. It's it's been fantastic talking to you today. So thank you so much for your time.
2: Well, I'm honoured to be on your podcast. And thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Jane. In our next episode, we'll be chatting to Dr Chrissy Hunter. Chrissy's been hugely involved in many LGBT charities,
1: and we'll be talking in particular about the challenges facing the trans community and older LGBT people. See you soon. Bye! Bye. Bye.